0: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. From the Financial Times in London, I'm Matthew Vincent, and this is FT Investigations. The collapse of Carillion last month highlighted the government's reliance on private companies to provide public services and build infrastructure projects. And at the same time, it brought to light some of the worst failings of the scheme known as PFI.
1: These corporations, Mr Speaker, need to be shown the door. We need our public services provided by public employees with a public service ethos and A strong public oversight. As the ruins of Carillion lie around her, will the Prime Minister act to end this costly racket of the relationship between government and some
2: of these companies?
0: That was the opposition leader, Jeremy Corbyn, describing the relationship between government and some PFI companies as a costly racket. And he is not the only critic of PFI. Our very own Martin Wolf wrote recently that while PFI could be a good idea if done the right way and for the right reasons, to the extent that PFI has been used to shift debt off the government's balance sheet, it is indeed a disgraceful swindle. Well, I'm joined in the studio to debate this question and many others by the FT's Jonathan Ford and Jill Plimmer who've written a series of articles investigating Britain's privatisation model, and by Alex Jan of global engineering company Arup, will also be joined down the line by Labour MP Stella Creasy. Jonathan, if I could start with you, it's about more than 700 hospitals, schools and military establishments in the UK They've all been built using private finance rather than direct government funding. PFI, of course, was designed by John Major's Conservative government, but has been continued by parties of both persuasions. Why do you think PFI schemes have had so much appeal for all the governments that have used them?
1: Well, I think one of the things is fundamentally it offered a way around a sort of historic problem for government, which is, of course, ministers love standing in front of new bridges or hospitals. Think of George Osborne and his high visibility jacket wandering around the country opening this and that. But there was a historic aversion that the government, particularly the Treasury, had to funding public investment. And Essentially, PFI was a sort of get-out-of-jail card, or so it seemed. It allowed the government to renew lots of infrastructure at a time when it was looking pretty clapped out in the late 1980s and early 1990s, and also a time of public spending constraints without piling upfront costs on the public purse. And there are two sort of perceived benefits. One is, I'd say, respectable, and the other is a bit of an accounting boondoggle. The respectable one is that it allows government to limit costs and transfer the risk of big projects to the private sector. That's a benefit. But the other side of it is that it keeps borrowing off the national debt, which was the other big appeal. And to my mind, that is a somewhat artificial benefit. It also comes with a real cost Contracts can last a very long time with the private sector and can be very inflexible. So if we think about the stories we read over the years about light bulbs being changed in the Treasury, which is a big PFI scheme since about the early 2000s, at a huge cost of sort of £200 a light bulb or whatever. And obviously you have to pay the higher returns demanded by the private sector, so they have to be real efficiencies.
0: Um, Alex, uh, £200 light bulbs
2: notwithstanding, what, in your view are the benefits of PFI. So I think we should think about the benefits in the context of two elements. One is the government policy level, which Jonathan's already touched on. It's important to remember that part of the agenda for this way of doing things came from the sort of the third way way of thinking, the Tony Blair era as such. And that was not just about this issue of building projects and using private sector capacity, but it was also about the case for public sector reform. So it's about trying to make services more responsive to their users and it's also about tackling what were perceived to be inflexible and inefficient working practices within the public sector. So that's kind of at one level where these things were very important. At the more project orientated level, I'd say there are probably three or four key benefits that are at least aspired to even if they're not always delivered. One is that we've already heard about how it brings more capital into the provision of infrastructure. And we've since the war had this general disposition against big governments in the UK. So it helps with that at one level. The other thing it does is it brings incentives for efficiency and innovation from the private sector in how they deliver services. And as long as they're able to keep some of those gains and the state benefits from that, you could argue that's a fair and equitable way of doing things. And then the other thing is it kind of reveals the real cost of providing infrastructure and public services. So long-term assets are maintained, renewed, and indeed returned in good order under these contracts. And I think part of the problem we have is that it's sometimes hard to compare that with the public sector where those costs are not revealed. Jonathan, if I can just go back to one of the
0: points you made about the transfer of risk and the fact that this was one of the arguments in favour of private finance. Has that really been the case with PFI projects?
1: Well, I think it's a question of the risk that is being transferred. I think in some cases it is easy or it's certainly possible to transfer risk reasonably efficiently, like construction risk of building schools, hospitals, what have you. The bigger issue, to my mind, when you look throughout the life of a project, because clearly it doesn't end with the construction process, as as Alex has said, the maintenance, the preservation and operation of the asset for whatever years, 25, 30 years. And then it requires the government and its lawyers to be pretty smart about identifying What use is there going to be for this building? Will technology change? Will demographics change over this long period? Because clearly, if they are unable to identify these big shifts, or even small ones, they can end up quite seriously out of pocket because the whole purpose of these contracts is in effect to penalise the government as the contractor if it doesn't stick to whatever the agreed course is of the contract. So I think it's a mixed picture, I would say.
0: What does the collapse of Carillion tell us about the mix and the transfer of risk?
1: Well, I think it tells you that as Carillion is now in liquidation, and one of the reasons why it's there is that it made a mess of one of the contracts, the Royal Liverpool University Hospital, that there was a degree of risk transference in its case.
0: Stella, if I can bring you in here, what do you think the Carillion episode tells us about PFI and the use of private companies generally?
3: I think it tells us not to get bogged up in um, ideological arguments about this, but actually to follow the money. Look, the problem nobody's talking about with PFI is it's an incredibly expensive way to borrow to build. And one of the reasons it's expensive is this idea that you were transferring the risks that might come from building something to the private contractor. What the Carillion example does is it blows apart the myth that you are transferring risk. Because it's a very simple truism here. The state isn't going to let hospitals and schools that it has commissioned go bust or get closed. Indeed, we've got PFI empty schools that we are paying for because we've committed to them. So we always pay our bills. So this is why this is the higher purchase agreement for the public sector. We pay over the odds for credit for buildings that I have to say, actually, there isn't a lot of evidence that the standards of maintenance have been better than they would have been in the public sector. And the question we have to ask ourselves, especially in the light of Carillion, is is it worth the cost? And on the whole, what the National Audit Office research shows is that it's not.
0: Well, let's have a closer look at this very issue of cost and what the National Audit Office report last month did show. Jill, it suggested the public uh, was not getting value for money for these contracts. What do you think the significance of the report is?
3: Well, the NAO report decided that there was no clear benefit in using PFI. It found that taxpayers were spending billions of pounds extra on hospitals and schools that were funding using it. In the case of schools, it cost 40% more than those that were funded directly by government, and for hospitals, it was 70% more.
0: Jonathan, as we've discussed in this podcast series before, some of the financial engineering at play in these arrangements also ramps up the cost, certainly for taxpayers, while potentially benefiting shareholders through dividends, offshore holdings as well. Can you explain that particular issue and why it's come to light so much of late?
1: Well, I don't think it necessarily puts up the cost. I think sometimes PFI can reveal that costs (laughs) might be a little bit more generous than the public sector had intended. I think one kind of classic example of that would be the M6 toll road scheme. Where the contractor built the project for about 600 million and transferred it under a concession to, I think it was Macquarie. And within a few years, that scheme had been refinanced for roughly, I think, 40% more than the cost of construction. So the operator was able to effectively take 400 million away for not doing very much other than going to the bank. Now, you can argue that the public sector was remiss in allowing that amount of money to go wandering around and I think we're now in a world where the government has attempted I think to address some of these issues by for example under the sort of reformed PF2 structure encouraging the state or the state will take stakes in projects so if there is some hidden dividend in there it will at least get to share in that. But there haven't actually been that many schemes under PF2, so it's very difficult to know whether that will be an effective mechanism of at least preserving some value for the state. Clearly things sometimes come about which simply nobody foresaw, which is the risk transfer problem once you're locked into a contract. If it turns out it's a foolish contract, there's not a lot you can do to get it back.
0: But while money may flow into the wrong pockets in some instances, there can also be losers from these arrangements. Stella, the failings of PFI have been felt very keenly by some of your constituents in Walthamstow, the borough you represent. I believe PFI contracts have caused real hardship for the schools that use them. And these were PFI arrangements initiated under a Labour government. Can you tell us about the actual experience and the hardships caused?
3: Yes. I will. I'm sorry. I really do want to pick up on this point, though. It's not about one or two badly written contracts. Systematically, the cost of this credit is much higher than had we borrowed on the public sector. So you're starting with a very expensive way to build. The problems that we've seen in my local constituency in Walthamstow have come from how public sector organisations, like my local hospital, Whips Cross, or like local schools, have had to manage the impact of that on their budgets so, for example, Whips Cross Hospital is paying back around, well, Barts is paying back around £150 million pounds a year to their PFI contractors in is free. Over half of that is just interest and service charges, so it's not actually paying for the maintenance of the hospital itself. Where we've seen contracts manage to be terminated, a third of the savings have come from the termination. That tells you that this isn't about the cost of light bulbs. That's why the frustration I feel with PF2 is, because it didn't actually touch this central issue of, is this the most cost-effective way for us to borrow as a nation to be able to build these schools and hospitals? Fundamentally, it's an incredibly expensive way of getting money to build a hospital and then run it. And then you see the boards of these hospitals and local head teachers trying to manage that, so having to cut corners, because the one thing they cannot cut is their repayment charges.
0: Alex, let's have a closer look at this issue of interest payments. One problem does seem to be that the rising interest payments built into the contracts, when combined with cuts to government funding, really do mean that many schools and hospitals find themselves struggling to meet the terms. Is there anything that can be done to ease
2: the burden? Well, I think a PF2 in a way was designed to address this issue. So one of the things that's happened with some of the earlier contracts in particular has been that there's been these windfall gains associated with refinancing, for example, and that's basically allowed investors to make big gains when they found cheaper ways to provide the funding for the projects. And I think the public sector was caught offside there because it didn't have a mechanism for sharing in that gain. PF2 is designed to help address that. The other thing is of course that we've kind of touched on this a two horse race going on here between whether or not private sector innovation and efficiency can outrun the cost of capital to these projects and as has been pointed out by Stella Creasy and this is partly with the benefit of hindsight because government borrowing has been so cheap for such a long period partly because of the financial crisis it has made private sector finance look even more expensive however the government was very reluctant to accept any risk associated with financing many of these projects and that means it ended up paying more to transfer that risk when with the benefit of hindsight, borrowing from the state may well have been cheaper.
3: Actually, I think yep. there's a really important point here, which is this idea that pf 2 is somehow going to solve these problems isn't the case. And indeed, the NA report says that. pf 2 is what the Liverpool and the Smethwick Hospital were built under. So we've got a higher level of equity stake in the Carilion projects that have now gone bust. But actually, we're not talking about enough of an equity stake that we can control and direct these projects. So we are still at the behest of the lenders and indeed one of the things that the NAO report points out is that the government has rewritten the rules for PF2 contracts to ensure that the borrowing is kept off the balance sheet so it doesn't make a difference at all. That's why the NAO themselves say that PFI and PF2 are exactly the same thing. There's a fundamental problem here which is are we getting a good enough deal for taxpayers and the NAO report says no we're not.
0: And what would be your prescription for delivering a better deal?
3: Well, I think there's two things. First of all, we have to deal with the existing contracts. And these contracts say very clearly that if you cancel them or rip them up, you have to pay the full cost to the lender. So we wouldn't save any money. That's why I've been advocating a windfall tax. A lot of these deals were signed at a time when they were paying a corporation tax of 30% and that was written into the value for money assessments for them. These companies are now facing corporation tax rates of 17%. So they've made billions of pounds that they didn't expect to get that I think we can reasonably ask for them back. I think longer term, we have to look for much more competition for our business as the state. After all, we always pay our debts because we don't let schools and hospitals close. So we should be getting a much better rate for credit. now, whether you do that through public sector borrowing and the Treasury Loans Board, or whether you do that through allowing people to be able to issue bonds or some form of a sovereign wealth fund, actually one of the reasons why these companies have been able to do what they do is there isn't much competition for our business. We need to change that to get a better deal for the taxpayer.
2: Alex, what's your view of some of those suggestions? Do you think that they would help? Well, I've got a huge amount of sympathy with many of those observations. I mean, I think the research in this area, notwithstanding the NAO's recent report, is remarkable in being so inconclusive. And not just in the UK's experience, but more generally. So that's the first thing. I just think it's very, very unusual, given how many projects have gone ahead, that there is no sort of settled view as to whether or not these projects are actually a good idea. I think that's fascinating, actually. And that tells us something about the clarity of information and transparency associated with them. The second thing is, I think it's important to think about these projects in the round. We have to think of them in portfolio terms. There will always be some projects where there are problems and the government loses out. There'll be others where the government does quite well. I mean, in the case of the M6 toll road, there was no public debt, as I understand it, involved in that. The government effectively got a free road. Now, I know the people who were paying at the point of use to use it would not agree with that critique entirely. But, you know, there is a swings and roundabouts component. The other thing I'd say is from Arabs' experience... In other countries, such as France and Belgium and Italy, there seems to be a more pragmatic approach to the way in which things like equity returns or windfall gains or indeed risks are shared between the state and the provider. And, of course, the English system is much more adversarial and we're always kind of looking to see the extent to which a contract has been negotiated in such a way as to give us something perhaps for nothing... In terms of thinking about the way forward, I think that, you know, the Institute for Government has recently put some wise words together on this. There's something around public sector capability to negotiate contracts. I think there's something around transparency and improving that and having a a stable pipeline. But I think the other thing is, you know, we should be pushing decision-making and ways of raising finance down to local government much more. I mean, the Mayor of London has arguably been more successful at driving projects forward using a mix of public and private sector capital than some of these very large, one-size-fits-all national schemes. Jonathan, any final thoughts?
1: I think one of the lessons I draw from this is that PFI has a function, but it's not necessarily suited to everything. And I think the sort of PFI schemes which are easier to justify are ones where there is clearly some sort of efficiency gain which the public sector wouldn't be able to have achieved on its own. And I'd give two examples, both actually in the defence sector. One is a naval stores base in, I think, Portsmouth, where effectively the government or the MOD outsourced this, and essentially it's putting supplies and stores on warships. They outsourced it to a supermarket retailer, which actually, in many ways... You can see that there's a conceivable efficiency there. And similarly, I think the army uses large flatbed lorries to drive tanks and other vehicles around the country, outsourcing rather than keeping an enormous fleet to themselves to outsource that to a business where they have a call on that capacity but otherwise it's used for other private sector functions seems to me to be at least in principle you can see as a taxpayer a potential benefit from those sort of deals
0: so they can work in some instances well i'm afraid that's all we have time for so my thanks to jonathan to jill alex and stella This is the last in our series on Britain's privatisation model, but if you missed the first two, you can find them in all the usual podcast apps by searching for FT Investigations. Thanks for listening.